Hey, welcome to the last episode of the podcast review series of Star Trek, air quotes, Picard. I didn't do episode 9 because I wanted to add it to this one, so I'm going to review both of them uh, here because they're listed as part 1 and part 2, even though it's part of a 10-part series. I don't get get that either, so here we are. Anyway, the episode which will never be shown as one episode is titled Et in Arcadia Ego, which in English means, even in Arcadia, there I am. And Arcadia refers to the utopian land, and I means death. And boy, we'll get into some deaths later, don't you worry. I'm going to start by mentioning what will be, appearingly, the largest build-up of a potential conflict is in pew-pew space battle in, by resolving this series, only for it to be kicked aside and it means nothing. Why do I talk like Shatner? Sometimes I, I drag it out and talk like this. In fact, a lot of what's happening in this show means nothing, except for the deaths at the end. Again, I'll get into that later. So let me get this straight. There are 218 Romulan Warbirds. They are all the new types with all the best tech, built during in or during the face of an impending supernova or built or having been built soon afterwards. It isn't a ragtag survivor fleet of leftover ships populated with desperate people because, you know, the Romulan Star Empire supposedly suffered huge losses when one of their stars went noble while planning the destruction of Mars at the same time. Do you remember what gave the Rebellion such a realistic feel to them? Was the ragtag fleet and everything was all scrimped and saved and salvaged from other things. That felt very real, whereas this Romulan fleet is just 200 of the finest. Right, let's get on with it. And also, surrounding this idea of a super Romulan fleet, it's the allocation of resources which has got me thinking, because if they were used properly, as in to save your own people, rather than concern yourself with synths on Mars, then maybe the Romulans wouldn't be upset at Picard for anything, would they? Yeah, but Jonathan... Those ships can't afford cloaking devices. That's why they aren't cloaked. So clearly the Romulans have been suffering. But let's not forget the Telshiar collapsed after the invasion of the Dominion homeworld, some 30 years prior to that. If you really want, if you want a real-world analogy, look at the KGB 40 years ago and now. Barely the same thing. Speaking of the Dominion, the combined Romulan and Cardassian fleets were smaller than this fleet because that's what they could muster. Yeah, but then the Telshiar is still operating. Yes, but at the same or stronger level. This is one of the problems with the show. We never get a feel for the universe and fully understand the political situations of the universe we're in. So we don't know the strength of the Romulan Empire. In fact, we never really see the Romulan Empire. We see the secret police force do all this. So is it actually part of the Romulan fleet? Is it just this secret organization? We don't know. We just have a singular story with no opportunity to understand the political arena our air quote heroes are operating in. For this two-parter, the 21st century words that were used were honey, pissing. Oddly, Picard says left the earth rather than earth. Uh, Piss off, asshole, ass, fucking, man, and crypto kung fu. So, so weird. Really weird. Um, Oh, and Picard is shouted again by another woman in a situation of forced drama by the golden soji. And they consider Picard to be such a threat, they lock up this 94-year-old man without guards. These androids are dumb. The people are dumb. The show is dumb. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The episode starts in space, and we're continuing the theme of flowers being important to the show, but not really, which take out all of the ships that have arrived into orbit. Rios' ship, Narek's ship, and then the motherfucking cube 
of all things. Like they just take it all out and they all crash on the planet. I think it's sad that there was some attempt at some kind of mystery in building up that we could build up to to get Picard to Soji. And now we're at the stage Soji can say wherever she, whatever she wants to move the plot forward because we're rushing to the end of the series. She has answers for everything now. Her character has changed totally because of some awakening that wasn't really transparent on screen. Picard starts saying random stuff in a haze, and it's here where I thought the consciousness of the planet had taken him over, or people on the planet had taken over his mind. But then it isn't really cleared up later, so why was he babbling this nonsensical sentence? I, I, I don't get it. Anyway, forget I said anything, because the show certainly does. The conflict between Picard and Soji doesn't make any sense either, this idea that Picard has to be a better father figure to Soji, because in the very first episode... Daj had to seek out Picard, and she even said, everything inside me tells me to trust you. So why wasn't everything that was inside Daj inside Soji? Doesn't matter, because Soji never trusts Picard until the very end, when Picard is dying in front of her in order to make his point that organic life forms are great, or something like that. Um, anyway, as I said, all the ships crash. Everybody is unhurt, unhurt. Picard, though, is left alone with... I killed my boyfriend and I'm supposed to be going to a starbase for the murder of Maddox Agnes Girati. Then they all go to the crash ball cube and they find Elnor and Seven. Haven't even got a scratch on them. They heap praise on one another, Elnor, because I don't know why he didn't listen and he didn't die. And what exactly has Elnor done so far in order to for Picard to be proud of him? I, I don't get these empty sort of emotional moments. And then Picard leaves Seven and Elnor on the ship so that they can tidy up or something. I'm thinking they want to repair the cube somehow to fight the Romulan ships later. Yeah, okay. Anyway, quick questions here. What's the point of 7 and 9? What is she going to do off camera apart from wait for Narek's sister to turn up? Why doesn't Elnor go to the rest of the gang to the android orgy house? How can Raffi fix Borg stuff now? There's, there's no mention of that. She's not an exobiologist uh, of any kind. It, the show never mentioned that. Why does the Borg say Locutus and then nothing happens? And why does only one Borg keep saying his name? The first time that happened... It was confusing, and it was pretty interesting, as it added to the confusion of being in the Borg cube from Picard's perspective. But now it's like that one person who wants your attention but has nothing to say. In this show, it has no payoff. It's like that neighbour you say hello to, but you never really want to speak to, or you never do speak to. You're just being neighbourly. And I thought there'd be something that would be playing into this idea of Locutus, but actually, no. It's just like a, hey, yo, you know, just like a, I guess, a bro Borg fist of some kind. A bro verbal Borg fist. It's the cutest, the cutest. But then, if they're shouting him out by name, then surely there's an idea of... It doesn't matter. Later, the gang arrive at the only house on the planet, a seemingly private residence with no obvious manufacturing capabilities to be seen, where everybody isn't surprised that these organic life forms are just walking through their patio. Oddly, they dress like humans from the earliest episodes of the TNG and TOS series with this scantily clad sort of sense of dress I, I don't i don't know why it's a bit weird now i would call that a little bit uninspiring even if it is referential but maybe their modesty subroutines are a little bit more relaxed as we go from dr sung to dr sung jr whose name is ridiculous and i can't remember it um obviously that leads us into the great revelation that dr sung had a son all this fucking time and it's only mentioned now and yet we don't even get into it it's just oh here's dr sung's son Right, no backstories required, nothing worth getting into. This would seem like a major addition to the Sung family and his legacy. But we get a few lines, and then Sun Sung is just doing his thing. If this was TNG, he'd get an entire episode to himself. 
Elmo did, after all, in this series. Isn't this supposed to be a huge revelation? And yet, there is so much behind this, and at the same time, it's so low-key how this character is treated. Never mind it throws up all these questions as to what he's been doing. There is never once a single mention about him from Sung or his actual mother, Juliana. And remember Juliana? Imagine if she had said to Data, after, obviously, the episode where Data deactivates Law, and they left this plot point open, imagine if she said, Data, you actually have a brother. Wouldn't it be amazing for Data as a new objective for his character to grow, for them to want to seek out flesh and blood brother? And also, how come these androids don't age like Data does? It's already been shown that Daj and Soji are the same creation as the one that Rios met 14 years earlier. I guess Sung wants perfectly ageless young women surrounding him. Why not? I would. Um, ever since watching Futurama and watching that um, Don't Date Robots PSA. I love you, Philip J. Fry. I'm going to skip a lot of the dialogue here because there's a lot to talk about, but I will note that the whole dealing with a teenager thing hasn't really mattered since Riker mentioned it two episodes prior. It hasn't come into play here at all in this episode, and I doubt it ever will, and it doesn't because I'm reviewing episode 10 here. There is no father-daughter relationship to be had. The series seems to be suggesting at that, but maybe season two, but I don't care. I'm not watching season two. Anyway, Picard is under house arrest in the most beautiful and fragile of bedrooms with the biggest windows ever for a Star Trek series. And at this point, it doesn't matter that these androids aren't Data's kids either, right? This hasn't been mentioned or continued as a main plot point for a while now. In first episode, it was like the idea that, oh, somehow these are Data's children. Well, they're not, are they? Okay, more quick questions, just to speed this along. What's with the forced goodbyes for everyone? Raffi loves Picard, but pulled a gun on him and mocked how he lived in replicated furniture. Red Letter Media did a bit about this with the introduction of Raffi in the scene where she hates Picard only, episode, only eight episodes earlier, and it's built on the idea of classicism, which shouldn't exist in 24th century, as mankind has no need for this anymore, as TNG explained in the episode The Neutral Zone. Oh, you sound like a proper geek. Look at you flexing your knowledge. But the point here is that humanity has gone beyond greed, has gone beyond worldly possessions. This conversation that Rafi has eight episodes prior is kind of, well, artificial, because she could have a chateau if she wanted to. Replicator technology allows you to just replicate anything, as Picard has proven with his brand new chateau, because the old one burnt down with his brother and his uh, nephew and his wife in, back in generations. So that chateau, centuries-old chateau, even if it was, it's none of Raffi's business, because it belongs to the Picard family. It's inherited wealth, or air quotes, inherited wealth, that exists inside the Star Trek universe. So, one, why is she ragging on him for his replicated furniture? Two, she chose to live as a hobo out in the desert, which looks pretty good, actually. Fuck off, Raffi. <laughs> uh, Raffi is hating on him. Moving on to the other quick questions. Who was the holographic mother giving the advice? Never explained. What exactly is Picard about Picard? What definable aspects of him from TNG are here? Anybody want to tell me? The planet's permanent lighting isn't, well, permanent. We never see it again. Why did Maddox leave the planet in the first place? Doesn't matter. Never explained. Why aren't there more androids? Surely they'd want to repopulate and they could do so at an exponential rate. But at the same time, how does this one house have the raw materials to create all these advanced life forms? How does Sutra die with having her eye taken out? And we see her death on screen in episode 10. So you take her eye out and she's dead. That's not how androids die. Data could have his head removed and would still operate. Like, he could be decapitated from his whole body. We saw it, and he could operate perfectly fine. He was pretty non-destructible until he, well, destructed in Nemesis. Uh, and as we see in part two, Narek holds Sutra down. Don't androids have super strength? Doesn't matter. Move on. Uh, how can an android learn to mind meld? Never done it before. 
and get the meld right in the first place? What has she got in her skin that is equal to the Vulcan ability to do so? I could understand if she's been practicing on Sung and Maddox, but do you remember Tuvok was training um, Narix? Not Narix. Who was that woman in um, the Ocompan in Voyager? Kez. There you go. Tuvok was training her. Who's been around the Golden Soji to train her on mind melding? And then you get this line, oh, from Sung, something like, oh, she's been well-versed in Vulcan arts. Like the show is creating a problem or an interesting thing. And then it just tries to course correct in the same scene by saying, oh, this is how she studied it. Oh, just studying Vulcan culture can allow you to mind meld. Stop being so geeky. Stop it. Is it going to get any better? Actually, it's not. Because then we get this weird transition to a cat actually called Spot 2. Or did Agnes just make it up? I don't understand because if she's just saying it, to Rios especially, would he get the reference anyway? Does he know that Data had a cat called Spot? And if it's for our benefit, then it's really fucking stupid. It's just dumb. And it's really on the nose as a reference does to just be happy about. And the transition to get us there is so lazy. I remember, actually, take a, take a moment out of this. I remember I wrote a story back in primary school. The last year of primary school, I must have been 12. And I actually wrote this story about two twin boys. And one of them was called Bill 1. And the other one was called Bill 2. And my teacher said that was so lazy. And it was, looking back. So, are the writers writing at the level of a 12-year-old? Because I came up with this. I thought it was cute and funny that two twin boys had names with numbers at the end because their parents wanted to define them with numbers. And this is what's happened. Anyway, I thought I'd just share that thing. Good things. There are some good things in this episode. When Rios's ship flies out of the transwarp gate, that was the first time I actually got a clear shot of this ship. So that was nice. And then the lighting is really nice on Patrick Stewart in that scene where he's with Agnes on the ship. Like, I'm not joking around. There's just some wonderful lighting on him. And it happens again in part two. And that that's it for good things. <laughs> um, okay, having watched part one or part nine, episode nine, and then I waited a week for the last episode. I've actually forgotten um, everything else in part one. But the next episode starts on the Borg Cube, which is going to be fully functional when the Romulans arrive. I hope so. Oh, I can't wait. There's a problem in itself, and it goes back to the conversation I had about what is the replayability of this TV show? None. Because if I, had un if I hadn't written down the plot points that I thought were rid ridiculous for part one, what would I remember from... That particular episode. Okay, let's clear the air with some quick questions. Um, was Narek's sister always on board? She had to be, right? I just don't get. I just don't get it because it looked like she beamed herself away to another location on the cube and hid now. But the transition from episode eight led me to believe she beamed herself to the Romulan ships that were going to were going to see in this amazing space battle later. Because visually, she beamed away, and then you saw the ships fly off. So that made me think, okay, she beamed away on those ships, but now she's on the Borg cube, uh, seemingly hours or a day in front of the Romulan fleet. Anyway, doesn't matter. Why didn't she kill Seven at all during any of this time while she was on board the ship? If she was on board the ship. Don't you love this new Trek show where Narek's sister says, did you fuck him? God, really? Anyway, because Sucha dies because of Narek and the Golden Soji, Sung changes his mind on the idea of killing trillions of people because he's on the android side until Sucha dies. I've seen a lot of complaints about this logic from Sung because it seems like he's only concerned about death because his creations are now flawed and we're talking about Golden Soji. So I'm guessing it would be okay to kill all life in the galaxy if the Golden Soji was justified with her actions, right? So I could allow that. And Sung is a weird character anyway. So uh, it gets 
difficult to want to think about it. He accepts Agnes as the metaphorical mother to a sacrifice for something I don't understand, but he then deactivates the golden soldier later, the fixer. I'm jumping ahead, but... And then Sung accepts Agnes's sacrifice, but then later on, he deactivates the golden soji with some sort of weird pen. And wasn't soji next to the golden soji? So he could have deactivated them both because they were right there together because he's, now he's trying to help our gang take back control of the galaxy um, from the mass, mass Effect 3 effect. Then we move on to Rios' ship. You see, I'm talking and I'm confused by it. I watched it. But anyway, there's a forced standoff because Narek had an argument with his sister and he actually got some character motivations that should have been there probably in the very first or second episode. And then the first, the, the fourth standoff between Rios Rafi is there. Elnor is like, no, you got to kill him, you got to kill him. And then how does he know that Narek has a sister as well? And then Narek talks about the mystery and the mythology of these, obviously, coming tentacles from space tentacles. And I just found myself bored. I didn't want to figure it out because there's all these weird names and he's over-explaining the mystery. And mythology doesn't really sit inside a show like Star Trek really well because it's all based around science. And there has been some discussion of mythology, but it's never gone into some, so so deeply like this. Um, okay, more quick questions. because just, I've just got to skip through this. I don't want to spend any more time on this fucking show. Skipping over the part where Agnes frees Picard because he's not under guard, they somehow make it back to Rios' ship, which is kilometers away. And isn't it lucky how Picard and Agnes don't cross paths with Rios and Rathi, who are on their way back to the apartment. They don't so they don't meet each other. And isn't it lucky how Rios fixed the ship with the magic wish device and left it behind for Agnes to show her many faces later? Like, Rios could have taken that with him to overpower the androids. What a lazy fucking device. Why don't you just say something broke and you just get a spare? What's with the forced drama? And they don't even use the ship. Well, Rios doesn't and Rafi doesn't. And then they've got this magic device that can do everything for them. <sighs> um, I'm not even laughing now. I'm so confused. Like, this is actually writing from Michael Chabon and Alex Kurzman. And this is supposed to be the new show spearheading an all-new kind of Trek. Uh, or new Trek shows. Probably some shit happened off-camera. I don't know. Just like how Rafi stopped drinking off-camera when she told the computer to stop serving her alcohol. I don't think that's important. No, just 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 mention it as an as a off-camera thing. How can Rios, Rafi, and Narek and Elnor fight androids? Their plan also relied on a secret bomb in a football. Now that is cheesy Star Trek that I know and love, <laughs> but ultimately pointless because they throw it at Soji and there's a fucking timer on it, and she just looks at it and throws it away. So that plan was ridiculous. And imagine trying to like kick and punch androids that are far superior in strength to you. And they kind of knock a few out before they get pinned down. And at this point, none of the androids are reacting to anything that's happened. They don't they don't know why Sung is deactivating Golden Soji. They just they just let it happen. They don't question it. And then the organic life forms are there. They just do nothing. Nothing at all. They're just they're just filler. Uh okay. Seven finds the Romulan woman now somehow. They don't, she do, and she doesn't just kill her outright like she killed all the other Romulans trying to save uh, Elnor. She has to chat with her, fight her, and somehow they are aware of each other. And the Romulan woman even knows her by name and basically says, Oh, boo-hoo, you're not the Borg Queen anymore. Which, by the way, why didn't Seven beam all those Borg back on board? Because the Borg are still alive. Doesn't matter. This Romulan woman's dead now, and we find out killing this Romulan woman was enough for Seven to see the error of her ways. Because... 
nothing from Voyager, none of the morality lessons from Janeway and the family mattered in this. Like, none of what happened there, sorry, none of what mattered or happened there matters now that has an influence on the character in this show. So we're just getting a clean slate. It's like having Captain Sisko just turn up from the Celestial Temple and he's helping Picard and we get no explanation for it. <laughs> and of course we get the countdown trope, the beacon and it's got to load up and that gives us all this drama because you've got, we've got we've got so precious time to fix this. Uh, Soji does some seemingly 3D graphical stuff to set it all up. And then the warbirds arrive, if I remember correctly. The firepower of 218 warbirds should have destroyed anything instant. I mean, I watched it, and they do the Picard maneuver. Agnes doesn't even fucking know what a Picard maneuver is. Then she replicates it with the magic wish device. And there aren't that many ships anyway, and they're tiny, and just so happen to have independent warp signatures. So you can't find the one with the one warp signature. And 218 ships don't just happen to destroy Picard's ship outright. Those are unbelievable odds. CVPO, actually, I want to know the odds on that one, please. That's the wrong franchise, you douche. Okay, sorry. Uh, then we have the dialogue that includes Planetary Stabilization Plan 5. Oh, sounds dramatic and ridiculous. Then the space tentacles from Mass Effect 3 come out of the portal. The little house on the prairie has enough power to open this portal, and the portal can't remain open because the plot says so when they close it. Like, the space tentacles, once they've got their foot in the door, can't leave it open. No. I mean, how many fucking movies have these one-way port portals that can only be powered from one end? So original. If you've paid for this show, you should be insulted. And it's free now as well, so doubly insulted. And what should be the best part of the series, and what many people predict accurately predicted, Captain I'm on Reserve Riker gets off his ass without telling Picard and gets an entire Starfleet fleet mobilized just in time to arrive for his Deuce X Machina. I will remind you, by the way, Rios's football wasn't even a Deuce X Machina because that was set up in an earlier episode with Rios playing football. You know, just so we could get the setup for the football bomb later. <laughs> and in what seems like a million starships, there's a face-off and then the worst lines from Jonathan Frakes doing his best with the material obviously handed to him. And he basically says, my ship is amazing and I want to use it against you along with all the other copy-and-paste ships behind me. Then there's a side note here. If this Chinese-named ship is the most amazing advanced ship in the fleet, what's happened to the Enterprise? It isn't the flagship anymore? It isn't even coming to the aid of its former captain? Uh, the Borg ship rises up from the planet. Seven and Elnor and the XBs, they, they managed to repair a lot of it, uh, probably with a leftover wish device. The Borg ship rises up and it joins the Federation Starfleet. And then we have this amazing battle where for the first time ever on Star Trek, we have Federation ships with a Borg ship fighting against Romulan ships. And it's an amazing battle. And obviously Picard uh, manages to get out of the way with his little ship and he helps. And then Captain Riker says the most amazing line to Commodore O. And no, actually none of that fucking happens. Uh, nothing. There's no amazing ship, bat ship battle. Uh, the Romulans who spent their entire lifetimes for this final eradication of synthetic life forms just leaves. There's no consequences. Commodore O is a traitor to the Romulan people and a mass murderer. She set up the attack on Mars, killing Federation citizens, and at the expense of Romulans' lives. She calls off the attack. No ships in the Romulan fleet. None of the captains disagree. There's no dissent in the ranks. They all just leave. Wouldn't she be executed for her failure when she arrives back on whatever bumfuck Romulan planet she's supposed to report back to? Oh, and by the way, 
The Romulans, remember, are the good guys. They were right. They were literally trying to save the galaxy, even though there were a bunch of bastards about it. And it's only because one android made one right decision that everything is cool now. She opened that portal, and then she closed it, because Picard was going to die. We'll get to that. Uh, and then, oddly, then Riker leaves with his copy-and-paste Starfleet fleet. I think he goes with the Romulans, because if he doesn't, what's stopping the Romulans from coming back? Uh, why didn't at least Riker's ship stay? Why did they need to go in the first Why did they need to go? If it, unless it was to escort the Romulans, but it wasn't clear. Then they were meant to protect the planet at all. They were meant to protect the planet. Then they're supposed to protect the planet, but not be there. And what about a mission debrief or an official Starfleet first contact with the people on this planet? I, I just don't get it. And when you make comparisons to what Commodore O did, and he's letting her off by escorting her back, Thomas Riker, as a comparison, did less and faced greater consequences for his actions, taking Defiant into Cardassian space. Doesn't matter. Why are you focusing so much on this? This is amazing. All those Federation ships. Isn't this what you wanted? You want to see the Starfleet fleet and, and Riker back in the chair? Yeah, we do. But you got to justify it. This is so fucking lazy. And wasn't the point of Starfleet not helping, providing the impetus for Picard to go into space in the first place? The writers and Patrick Stewart have said repeatedly in interviews, with, especially in Variety magazine, the Federation had taken an isolationist policy. And then they show up after Admiral Clancy tells Picard to shut the fuck up. And then they save everyone under the threat of force just to convince Soji organic life isn't bad. The logic doesn't stand up to scrutiny, as with many other things. Now that the fleet is there, then that's kind of negated the whole point of everything that Picard was trying to, trying to do because they came right at the end. And they weren't supposed to. And can I mention just how lazy the fucking ships are? You've got a copy and paste fleet from the Romulan side and the Federation side. If you watch the last episode of Season 5 to DS9, for what is a great fleet and a fan favourite to pick out all the attention to detail, the budget and respect towards the fans of this show is so disrespectful. It's so bad. They duplicated special effects to a ridiculous degree, hoping to wow us, or to wow our lazy minds. And they've replaced it with basically scale. They wanted to show a huge, ridiculously sized fleet, and then it's for nothing anyway, so there's no ship battle. Uh, and regarding the ship battles, remember in TNG when a single Romulan ship was a significant threat? Remember when Tomalok thinks he's cornered Picard, and the Klingon ships decloak, and we're like, oh shit, now Picard's got, got the one up over Tomalok. Like, those were great moments. And yet here we have a fleet, and it's and it's just boring to be frank. Doesn't matter. Let's move on to the next scene. Uh, Picard starts to die now. He was fine in episodes one to nine. Here he starts to to fail. Doesn't tell Riker, and then he meets Data while his brain waves are in a holding pattern for the Golem body set up in the previous episode. And the Golem body isn't a fascinatingly new thing, by the way. Remember Data's mother, Juliana? She was a Golem also. Uh, but I can understand if Agnes doesn't doesn't know. Um, and this is probably the worst scene now. I've just been ragging on the rest of it, but this is the worst scene. Why is this scene here? Why couldn't the dreams about Data just be dreams without getting closure on them literally by speaking with another Data held in memory for 30 fucking plus years who's been alive all this time inside a memory box like Sungor Maddox who revere Data because a lot of the other androids have names taken after Data never felt to give him a body in all these years. The B4 version did work then to some degree, and can't any version of Data come back now, now that the ban is lifted? I... Anyway, we didn't get a reunion. We got another death scene for Data instead. Did anybody ask for this? 
Why did this series want to wrestle Data's death of Nemesis, only to change that movie in the process, and show us Data dying slowly because, because he wants to be more human? But he didn't have to die. He died, and it was a better death in Nemesis. We understood his motivations. We don't need the dialogue and the fake philosophizing over our mortality about how it makes us human. It's a false philosophy. We're only talking about it because of the limitations in our current technology. Am I not a human? So the show is trying to say, I'm not human if I don't want to die, which I don't, by the way. Life is amazing. I want to live forever, just like Commander Riker does. And there are loads of examples from history where some cultures, some people in specific cultures, want to live in some form beyond their own lifetimes. The Mongols did that, the Chinese, the Romans. They all have aspects of their culture, which backs up my point. So why does this show ask us to consider living long lives isn't good for us and will never be complete without having an end fuck off and and why is the tech sector like literally now in silicon valley at this moment trying to fix our own mortality the rich want to live i want to live Riker says he wants to live forever none of us are human i guess why is data gatekeeping (laughs) and why is it with such a negative sort of there's a negativity behind that like we should live to learn within our limits Um, but we weren't asked to live with these limits when we were born. We're just born and then we've just given, we're just handed to us. Um, Imagine how much wiser we would be if we could live to be 150 or 200 instead of 70 or 80. Imagine what work we'd get on with in our lives with a longer lifespan. I really hate how there's a general feeling in pop culture that living long lives is wrong somehow, or there's just a general, there's just a general uh, idea that living long lives is is not productive in any way. Somehow we'd get lazy. I don't believe that at all. Maybe before the internet, I would believe that. But now, having seen the beauty of the internet and the, and the, and the collective consciousness being expressed online, there's loads of fascinating things and there's loads of committed people who want to do the best and continue to do the best until, until the very day that they do die. So imagine if they don't. They're just going to keep producing and contributing to society. And they've got the wealth of experience accrued as well over the rest of us. Let's say they're 200 years old and they've got so much wisdom to hand down to 20-year-olds. We would benefit greatly from this collective consciousness that is only just just getting wiser and wiser and wiser. Um, and it just shows that this show is not positive in in, in any way. Again, it isn't. this isn't Star Trek. A better way to wrap up the dream narratives would be to have Picard feel like saving the androids was his purpose. And that could put Picard's consciousness at rest. No. Instead, we literally had to see Data die and then get a fake death for Picard prior to that, by the way, surrounded by people who I don't care about them. I mean, why isn't Riker there at least? The emotional residence in the show is lacking because we don't have any familiars accompanying Picard in this show. Okay, Raffi served with Picard for a long time, probably longer than Riker in terms of years, but it was all off screen. It doesn't mean anything to us, the audience, who have watched TNG and the movies and grown up with all of Picard's friends and characters. It doesn't mean anything for us. It doesn't mean anything for us who have watched TNG and the movies and we could have had any of the other characters or friends of Picard watch him die, but he doesn't die. And the show is trying to say we should embrace death, but Picard can live. And so now the show wants us to believe there's going to be a season two with a 79-year-old actor playing a 94-year-old man in a 94, a brand new, by the way, a brand new 94-year-old golem body instead of just having a brand new commander data, who I wouldn't mind being played by somebody else. It's okay to get someone else to play data. Instead, now we have Picard, who is an artificial life form 
with no extra capabilities. And the show even said he received trauma from being an artificial life form for his few days as a Borg. This show is ridiculously insane in its narrative and it's in contradictions. Uh, anyway, um, we're nearly at the end. This show ends with all our heroes on Rios' ship getting ready for the further adventures. We don't know where, they don't say why. I don't, I don't even know why they're traveling together anyway. Don't know any of their motivations for sticking together. Remember at the end of Star Trek VI, the Enterprise is being decommissioned. Uhura gets the message from Starfleet and Kirk's like, you know what, just for one last jaunt, let's go to the second star on the right. And it's a great Peter Pan reference. Even in the face of their family being broken up, as in Kirk's family, Kirk takes a moment to make everyone feel better. Here, why is Picard's crew happy together? What are their motivations? There's a meme going around from Red Letter Media summarizing the characters on the ship. Let me share. Soji. Soji was easily convinced to almost murder the entire galaxy. Seven of Nine, a mass murderer. Elnor, a psychopathic killer. Rios covered up a double homicide. By the way, that story thread is left unresolved. Raffi, the only black lead who is also a drug addict and a failure of a parent. Agnes, a murderer. And here, I have a very long list of things that are unresolved that the show says doesn't matter with season one because it's now finished. Are you ready? Why does Soji join them? She just found her homeworld and isn't interested in staying. I guess we'll get to see the father-daughter relationship for season two. Number two. So what's happening with Agnes? She's not going to the Starbase to be uh, sent to jail for killing Maddox. Doesn't matter. Number three. Oh, and she's also going to start banging Rios now because they're in a relationship. Number three. What happened to the Borg cube? Remember the Borg cube? Didn't get a chance to face off against the Romulans. What was the point of any of that? Especially with the Queen 7 of 9 bit. Number four. What happened to the XBs? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Number five. What happened to Narek? He was last spotted under the boot heel of an android. Maybe he's still there. That storyline doesn't matter. He didn't die. We didn't. He didn't get a send off. the The love story wasn't further complicated between him and Soji. Just that's it. Gone. Number six. Why did Data have to die? Did anybody who went into this show want to see Data die again? And then he started molding away as well. Um, and now that he's experienced death, can we just plug his USB sticks back in and upload him back into another body? Number seven. Seven and Raffi are together now because, and how. I don't mind a beautiful relationship between these two lovely-looking women, but at least set it up for us. These two characters never even spoke to each other during this season, and now they're holding hands intimately. Number eight, what does Chakotay feel about this lesbian relationship? Will he be okay with it? Number nine, will Chakotay want to get involved like Ross from Friends did with his lesbian girlfriend? Um, number ten, who is the rebound in this new alliance of female solidarity? Well, because both of them are upset, are upset at men. Uh, number eleven... Seven joins the Borg again, and it's, n it's no big deal, or mentioned ever again, but it was in Voyager. Doesn't matter. Twelve. Who is in charge of Starfleet intelligence now? What's the fallout from Command Commodore O revealing herself to not being, obviously, a Commodore, a true Commodore? Doesn't matter. Even Admiral Clancy can't even give us a line to explain. Number thirteen. Why can't we have Admiral Clancy even apologise to Picard? No closure on her behaviour or any kind of reconciliation. In fact, she gets to stay a bitch. Her, her story ends with her being a bitch. Do we have any positive role models here? Four women. Number 14. Why did Data have to die again? Was it a better death than Nemesis? We wanted a reunion, not a funeral. I said that before. I was perfectly happy with Data just being in Picard's dreams. Number 15. The ban on synths is lifted off screen because one synth didn't do the bad thing that the whole show was set up for. Any synth could open that portal 
to the greatest threat to all life in the galaxy. What about all the other synths? What about the slave army of bots Starfleet had? They're going to be put back into work as working as slaves again? This TV show missed the whole point, the essence of the moral dilemma presented in Measure of a Man, even though it lifted elements from it. Speaking of lifting elements, a ton of mythology was also lifted from Greek culture and just thrown aside. How intellectually bankrupt are these writers? Michael Chabon is supposedly a great novelist, so I've been hearing. Let me explain. The episode titles have Greek references, and then we had the literal representation of Tartarus and Titans included in that portal. Doesn't matter, does it? The Tartarus uh, is, a, is basically in Greek culture from the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as the prison for the Titans. Tartarus is the place where, according to Plato's uh, Georgius, souls are judged after death and where the wicked received divine punishment. Tartarus is also considered to be a primordial force or deity alongside entities such as the earth, night and time. Okay, that sounds amazing, but it was just thrown in and then Soji closed the portal, then it was gone. And speaking further of Greek culture, so this is number 16. Alongside wondering what kind of love Picard has for Raffi, did you know in Greek culture there are seven kinds of love? You have ros, which is called, which is in English sexual passion. You have philia, which is deep friendship. Ludus, playful love. Agape, love for everyone. Pragma, which is long-standing love. Uh, Philousia, self-love. I do a lot of that. Storge, parental love. So what kind of love does Picard have for Raffi? Is it the same kind of love expressed even for Beverly Crusher? Or even his wife from the Inner Light episode? No wonder placing all kinds of love inside one word makes our understanding difficult here when Picard says, I love you, Raffi. Number 17. Why can't we have a younger Picard played by Tom Hardy? So why is the Gollum the same fucking thing as normal Picard? Number 18. Why did Data have to die? Can't we just have a younger actor play him also? Number 19. Why did Picard have to die? And he's now a synth himself with no special powers. It's just Picard. Do you realise this show has killed Jean-Luc Picard? And this show has allowed, I have to repeat myself, has allowed Data to embrace death and tries to moralise it, but Picard doesn't get to die. He has no choice and he has no agency in his own death, even though he wanted to die in order to make a point to Soji. It didn't have to be about his aromatic syndrome. I get it, it's a reference to TNG, all good things, but it could have been something else and he could have been saved by a medicine altogether instead of just being given a whole new body and you're ruining the... You're just contradicting the whole essence of what the character has been going through since Best of Both Worlds. <sighs> 20. What about Raffi's son and that plotline? Doesn't matter. Number 21. Why was Soji on the cube in the first place? Doesn't matter. <laughs> 22. Why were the Romulans helping the XBs? Was it just a convoluted way to expose a synth? Doesn't matter. 23. Agnes isn't going back to the Daystrom Institute, if not even to jail. She did kill a Federation citizen, after all, and she is now one of the leading experts in this field of robotics that's been allowed again. And last one, number 24. <sighs> Why did Data have to die? They could have built a body for Data, but didn't. I know I've mentioned it four times, but I've mentioned it in four different ways. But anyway, just having these 24 things unresolved is criminal. Why are these things unresolved? Think about the finale of All Good Things. I think there's one thing that was unresolved, and that was when they said the anomaly was created by three enterprises from three different time periods, when actually one of them was created by the USS Pasteur. That is a nitpick. Um, but nothing else can kind of crop up in that show and be a problem for the show. Uh, maybe the Deanna Troy and Worf thing a little bit, but 
the fact that you had that episode where Worf is jumping through different alternate realities and he falls in love and he's aware that he could have married and made love to um, Troy and had kids. I mean, you can say it was set up there, kind of. And then obviously at the end of the episode, Worf is like, do you want to have dinner with me? Everything was nicely wrapped up. So what's the problem with this show? I just hope it illustrates um, some of the problems, some of the problems, aside from the fact that it isn't a family show. It doesn't engage in any of the humanist themes or moral dilemmas that classic Trek would. That's probably why a lot of the ratings for the show has gone down. People were expecting, and you know, the classic Star Trek that we know and love, the ship's log, the, the mission for the week. Here we've got serialized... Uh, story that DS9 did better and even in DS9 you still had things pertaining to the one episode that doesn't crop up again so you had a bit of both like DS9 is superior and yet it's 30 years older or 25 years older this show has managed to divide fans instead of bringing them together it didn't matter where you were in the political spectrum with old Star Trek Star Trek was meant for everyone and here we have partisan beliefs inserted into the show by the showrunners and they do not hide this either plainly for us to see in the show uh, or even in the interviews. The show is an activist statement, as Midnight Edge states, and I agree with him. He put out a YouTube video and, you know, the showrunners have said this is a reaction to Trump and Brexit. Okay, fair enough. You can have it be a reaction to our times, which is what some of the deflection uh, from, from the critics of the critics like to point out. But the show doesn't even want to explore these issues and think them through. Again, the Romulans were the good guys. The theme in these 10 episodes has been prejudice is bad, synthetic life is dangerous, but then doesn't do anything with this material in anything that would be considered new or original. Battlestar Battlestar Galactica did it, Star Trek did it, Futurama did it. Um, And if it wasn't even Star Trek, it's still just a terrible show on its own. It doesn't bring anything new to the genre of science fiction. And there are so many recycled ideas here, not just from Star Trek, but from everything else uh, that I don't care to mention. And it doesn't matter. I'm getting tired. Can you believe it? Um, But we'll end it on good things. There are some good things. Um, And the worst part is that if you read online, it's been said by the showrunners that if people complain about this show, you're a toxic fan or you just don't want to move with the times or you don't even get what Star Trek is. That's pretty insulting. And that's a really easy way to alienate your fan base. Star Trek never wanted to alienate itself from its fans. I'm not sure what moving with the times entails, uh, other than to just unless you want to divide people, but this conversation doesn't exist in a bubble. Uh, but alongside this show is something is another show called The Orville, which has characters from different races. There are trans people in it, and it deals with themes in the same way that classic Trek did in today's times. Air quotes, and no one complains about The Orville. So we've got something to compare it against, and yet there isn't any outcry. I think there should be a rethink as to who is um, putting. This, this air quote Star Trek material out. There's even an article by the AV Club which discusses how there is basically no major plot twist, something absurd to leave us with in case this show was any good uh, or worth revisiting. There's, like, there's no replayability, I've said that to you also, um, but the link is in the show notes if you want to read the article. And having said all this, we can now get into the good things about this show. Number one, the show is finished and now I understand how bad Kurtzman Trek is and I'll definitely not be touching anything related to it I'm going to be watching the Orville once I've finished DS9 and classic Star Trek and I've and I'm someone who skipped Discovery by the way and now and now I feel justified more so number two Captain Riker's character was the only thing 
not bastardized in this entire show. Even though he lost the kid, he rolled with the punches. Some of his lines were awful, but again, they weren't his fault. Mr. Grin, oh, sorry, Major Grin on YouTube has done a compilation of when Riker was captain on TNG, nearly, neatly illustrating the, the quality of the writing between these two shows. Again, not Jonathan Frakes' fault, but I am just happy to get some Riker, and in the end, he came out through the series okay. Episode Retrospectives. Let's do the nines and tens of the other Star Trek shows together. For the original series, Dagger of the Mind. I haven't seen it yet, but I will watch it soon. Uh, a binge watch is in order when the coronavirus goes away. Number 10 for TOS, the Corbinite Maneuver. Who can forget the shock of seeing the alien in this episode? And then you find out that the child is the one driving the spaceship, drinking Tranya. <laughs> uh, for TNG, uh, there are two episodes. Episode 9 is The Battle, the one with the Stargazer. The episode is saved by Patrick Stewart's uh, amazing acting that wasn't in um, Star Trek Picard. Number 10, it's Hide and Q with the Napoleon Pigmen and Worf uh, tries to fight them. And Riker obviously becomes a member of the Q. DS9. Now, I actually made a mistake here because this is actually the sixth episode. I actually mentioned the ninth episode in an earlier episode. And that's the one where Bashir, Bashir is taken over by a criminal. Anyway, in this, this episode that I'm talking about, it's Q with Vash. Um, that's a decent mystery. It's a fun episode. And episode number 10 for DS9 is Move Along Home. Need I say more? Alan Moraine, count to four. Alan Moraine, come with me. And Voyager. Uh, Voyager's two episodes is Emanations. Watched this one when I was younger. I liked it, and I liked the central idea of the aliens having an afterlife. In fact, I want to watch it again, because when I was younger, this inspired me to think that the HO3 in our atmosphere are human souls. That's why the ozone layer is able to protect itself, because the HO3 is always able to uh, regenerate. That's my... 14-year-old or 15-year-old mind at play. Uh, and episode 10 is Prime Factors. This is the episodes aliens mentioned in Star Trek Picard with the transporter technology. That If, if you haven't watched it, it's the one with the Sakarans. Uh, I watched this episode recently just to find out what the skinny was on this. Uh, it's an okay enough episode. I enjoyed it. And with Enterprise, episode 9 is Civilization. I haven't seen it. I have been saying that a lot recently, and that just shows how quickly the drop-off was for me with this show. Something about pre-warp society and a scientist who's being naughty i don't know don't care and episode 10 is fortunate son freighters and norsicans or some such again i haven't seen it i don't care um but as a, as a as my final retrospective i'd have to pick emanations from voyager and the q episode with vash from ds9 <sighs> done i thought i could get through this and find more more ridiculous stuff stuff and laugh at this tv show um but it turns out i can't i just got tired pointing out all the problems with this show um it's amazing and it's so insulting it's so lazy again i'm happy i didn't pay i'm not happy with how much i invested i wish i skipped it but it had picard in it and data in the trailer so they tricked me the fucking trailer i've wasted 10 years of mine <laughs> 10 years <laughs> it feels like 10 years i've wasted time watching all these fucking episodes and then trying to trying to just illustrate i haven't know though the podcast serves a point to illustrate how bad it is and so you need to look at the bad to understand how to make it better and i was recently saying this to a student in one of my creative writing courses um when i was at university i was fascinated with japanese culture and photographing japanese culture and i think i came back from japan and, and I requested uh, a book, I don't remember the name, and I saw like a little bit of it, a review or something, and I said to my lecturer, could you could you order this book for the library? And he did, because he, he wanted students to engage with that, and 
fill out the library and make it a better uh, photographic library for well for for for, for for photography students. When I got the book and I could took it home and I started to read it and look at the pictures, I was just like, this is very superficial and boring, and you haven't really added much or explained much about Japanese culture with this photo book. And then I went back to my lecturer and I apologized to him and said, sorry, um, I feel like I've wasted you know the university's money. I cared that much about about my time at university, and I said, I feel like yeah, I've wasted your money, and I'm sorry. And he said, no, it's important to reflect on what is bad so that you don't make those mistakes. And so at the same time as I'm telling you I'm tired having spoken about this show, and maybe you find it frustrating, it is important. We've got to know what is bad so that we've got something to compare against or we learn from other people's mistakes so that we don't do it. Now, obviously, I'm not going to write a science fiction show, but I do want to throw out there what is bad writing and have that discussion because it makes me a better teacher for my students that's that's the positive that i'm taking away i won't tell my students to watch this and i won't tell them to listen to this podcast either i'll just try to learn from this and so when i see their characterizations they'll become a better writer for it or if i look at their themes and narratives throwing out and they're only 15 15 16 themselves they can get a head start so that if they are going to take up writing they will be a better writer and that's because i'm explaining to them how bad this is by via proxy and by example um yeah that's the outcome and of course if you want to if you enjoy ragging on a show and learning about tv itself then i hope this served the purpose as a classic trekker i will try to turn the bad into good so that i could help my students at least understand how to be better critics and for myself as well because it's so hard to just end this podcast series um it is a disappointment of a show without a doubt it's lazy incomprehensible when you just take two minutes to uh, understand it uh, but the takeaway for me is that it serves a point even though I feel like I've wasted my time watching it the podcast that I've created will serve me more than the show because of the show because you get to I get to practice my critiquing skills I want to be a better reviewer of sorts for the podcast but also as a creative writing um, for my creative writing classes and I want to point out the good and the bad so that I can help my students. And ultimately, as a classic trekker, that's the positive that I'm taking away from this. So I hope that you've been inf- you felt like you've been informed by this. Um, when Adam gets back, he actually likes the show. And I'm like, what the hell? So we haven't finished yet, just yet. So maybe we can have a proper loose rant about it. And um, I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Take care.